This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, Pastor Kearns, even though the official or semi-official end of summer has come, we are continuing today with our summer series on the, on the epitome to the formula of Concord. And today we turn our attention to uh, article number five, the law and the gospel. What's great about this one is, as I was originally reading through the Solid Declaration, everything that we've covered up until now, uh, you know, it was refreshing and it was nice, but it wasn't anything mind-blowing. It wasn't anything new. However, when I got to law and gospel, oh my goodness, that changed everything. This is this is not a way that evangelicals are taught, and so this was wonderful to read. I think I recall when I was a child, for confirmation, I received Haley's Bible Handbook. Do you, have you ever heard of this? Of Haley's, course. Of course. And uh, <laughs> I do remember running into a statement, and I'm sure if I dug this out from my childhood book chest, I would find this, that he does attempt to distinguish between law and gospel. So somewhere in the lexicon of evangelicalism, there is a distinction between law and gospel, but the Lutherans have gone miles and miles in sharpening this distinction and, and making it better. And part of that has to do with the fact that our own history suffered as a result of some misunderstandings. So to bring us into the story here, there was a theologian who hung around Wittenberg, uh, even alive during Luther's last years, by the last name of Agricola, A-G-R-I-C-O-L-A. That was his Latin name, uh, means farmer, so his uh, German name was Bauer. Anyway, he went by Agricola. And Agricola asserted that the only way to bring about repentance was through the preaching of the gospel, that the law, in other words, was entirely uh, useless for this purpose, and that, therefore, the law uh, should not be used in the church. So uh, this was known as antinomianism, and we're going to be talking a lot more about antinomianism because not only does Article 5 deal with law and gospel, Article 6 actually takes up the matter of the third use of the law, and the third use of the law has to do with whether or not the law ought to be preached to Christians at all. But we're going to focus today on this distinction between law and gospel. And why don't you read us that paragraph on the status uh, of the controversy, the status of the question. Sure. Is the preaching of the Holy Gospel properly not just a preaching of grace, which announces the forgiveness of sins, but also a preaching of repentance and reproof, rebuking unbelief, which some people say is not rebuked in the law, but only through the gospel? So let's put this in layman's language. Uh, the question here is this. If I want to use God's word uh, as God has given it to us, in order to bring people to faith, which message of God do I uh, properly refer to? Do I properly refer to the gospel, or do I properly refer to the law, or do I refer to both? Now, Agricola's contention was that the law was useless. The law, the law's power and the law's force applied only to open, unrepentant, sin in the world. In other words, uh, God's law should be deployed against things like prostitution or against usury and, and other things like this. But when it came to the church, the thing that defines the church is gospel and gospel alone. And this was the controversy at the time. Isn't that amazing how in Agricola's time it was the church is to focus on the gospel and 
rarely use the law. That's according to him. Right. Right. But now, especially in the American evangelical church, it's just the opposite. It's been flipped. It's like all the Christians get law all the time, and the gospel is something that's attached at the end of many sermons in hopes of um, seeing that the lost folks who are there come to faith in Christ. And I would say that that probably has to do with a categorical confusion on the part of the uh, of the evangelical church. Clearly, and number one, they don't even think in these terms, right. as you pointed out right. before. Uh, but number two, um, it it is the case that in the scriptures themselves, in these articles here that we're going to be talking about, uh, these these various affirmative statements actually draw attention to the fact uh, that that it's uh, you have to read the scriptures artfully in order to understand whether you're looking at a law statement or a gospel statement. So let's define uh, what each one does, okay? I think that'll be helpful. So let's start with the preaching of the law. So when Lutheran children learn the catechism, they learn the law through the Ten Commandments, these ten precepts of the Lord. And inside of those Ten Commandments, of course, is packed much more than just the prohibition. You know, for example, with uh, you shall not commit murder. Well, it's not just not committing murder. It's not hurting or harming your neighbor in his body, but helping and supporting him in every physical need. So there's a positive and a negative side to this thing. So it's really all of what God teaches about our life toward one another here on earth. But the purpose, uh, well, let's let's just get right into the text here, shall we? And uh, we'll, this is how I think it, it, it would be most effective Pastor Kearns for us to digest this. This is so short that I think we can read each paragraph, pause, and discuss, and then move on. So why don't you go ahead and read the first affirmative statement, the pure doctrine of God's word. We believe, teach, and confess that the distinction between the law and the gospel is to be kept in the church with great diligence in a particularly brilliant light. By this distinction, according to the admonition of St. Paul, God's word is rightly divided. So we still haven't gotten to a definition between law and gospel. That's going to come a little bit later, but but this is sort of putting a stake in the ground and saying, look, this is a really important concept that you got to wrap your head around. And cited here is 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, which I'm getting right now. So this is very interesting. Uh, we were just looking up 2 Timothy 2, 15, and as we read this in our ESVs, this is how the ESV actually translates it. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, in the Greek text, it says, orthotomunta ton logon tes aletheas, that is rightly dividing uh, the word of truth. And the Lutherans, in other words, properly understand that this verse has to do with the division between law and gospel and not but not just uh, the right handling of the word of truth. Bear in mind, of course, that the ESV, used in many Missouri Synod churches, uh, is a largely a good translation, but there weren't any Lutherans on the committee. It was all those coming from the Reformed background. So uh, this is the problem with Lutherans reading the scriptures in the United States of America. We just don't have a good translation. Translation in English. And why is that? With, and I'm sorry to deviate. I mean, with the caliber that the Lutherans have, not only in translation, but also in linguistics. And I mean, we've got a Lutheran study Bible, which obviously is the ESV with the Lutheran notes. 
which I assume is the way that, you know, they would have a footnote maybe under this verse that says actually it's it's divided. I mean, why haven't the Lutherans undertaken a project like this? Well, part of it's historical accident. So English was foisted upon us right. during uh, the interwar period. And so English happened. And so we just had to start using whatever was available. Um, I think there's another, uh, you know, I've heard the philosophical reason um, is that people are worried about having an idiosyncratic translation out there. The Catholics have their Jerome Bible. The rest of the Protestant world has its ESV or what NIV or whatever the case might be. And, and the Lutherans didn't want to be the ones having the, the one weird translation. But it would be very helpful. Well, just to put a cap on it, what do you, what do you think? I mean, regardless of the, the idiosyncratic... I think we need our own translation, uh, and I think there are so many passages in Scripture uh, that are mishandled by the contemporary translations, like on a linguistic level. So I'm not even talking about a theological predisposition here. I'm talking about on a linguistic level, you have this mishandling of the Scriptures in the translation, like we just saw here. I mean, orthotomunta, correctly dividing. dividing. I mean, that's what temno is is to divide. Um and we get handling in the ESV. I mean, this is this is a huge, huge. Um, it it sort of pulls the rug out from underneath the whole Lutheran approach to the scriptures. All right. Well, let's continue. So, well, let's let's just focus on this. Um, so we've got law and gospel, um, and it's interesting. They are to be distinguished from one another, but not extinguished by each other. And I think a lot of times when we hear distinction, we hear extinction. That's not what we're saying at all. These two messages of God, both are divine according to this. God's law is God's law and God's gospel is God's gospel. They, they are held together in tension with one another and distinguished from one another, but not separated from one another. And neither one is used to extinguish the other. In other words, the gospel can't extinguish the claims of the law, and the law can't extinguish the claims of the gospel. This is going to sort of play through this entire thing. But wouldn't you say that this is just the way in which God speaks? Yes, absolutely. So this is simply noticing what the scriptures themselves bring to us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, that is a wonderful law and gospel statement. On the one hand, repent. That's a law statement. Turn away from your sins. See yourself in the mirror of God's holy law and realize that you have fallen short of the glory of God. And then the follow-up, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is wherever Christ is with all of his gifts, saving us from our sin and from our, our eternal condemnation. So is it a silly way to, to say that this is just God's accent? I mean, coming from the South... To the Midwest, people love to talk about my accent. People love to talk about your accent if you were to come to the South. And so this is this is just the way God sounds. It is law gospel. Right. Constantly law gospel. And you see it throughout the scriptures. As soon as your eyes are open to it, um, it's difficult to dodge. You, you have to make an effort not to hear it. And speaking of, I mean, it, wasn't it Luther who said something like, when the theologian gets this. When the student gets this, what, you move them up to the front of the class, you give them an honorary doctorate. I mean, this is... Put the doctor's cap on. <laughs> right. Yes, 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 because this is it. 
and we'll find out why. Shall I continue? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. We believe, teach, and confess that the law is properly a divine doctrine, Romans 7, 12. It teaches what is right and pleasing to God, and it rebukes everything that is sin and contrary to God's will. So here we see that the law has a twofold purpose. A lot of times we'll talk about a threefold purpose, but here uh, the twofold purpose, number one, is to show what is actually pleasing to God, and number two, to rebuke sin and to expose it. It exposes sin. So let's talk quickly about each of these uses. Uh, one of them is known as the usus theologicus, the theological use. That's the proper use of the law to expose sin. The other use that gets talked about here, this showing what is pleasing to God, is known as the usus politicus, the political use. How do we get along together in this world? Well, God himself has revealed this to us in his law. And in Lutheran speak, we would say that first one that you said would be the mirror, the theological use. And then the latter one that you said would be the first use, which would be the curb. The curb, yes. And and even actually, I mean, there's the curb function as well as the ruler function. A lot of times we restrict the ruler function to applying solely to Christians, those right. who have already been converted right. to the faith. But it is the fact that people in the world, apart from Christ, know because of the law written on their hearts what things are pleasing to, you know, they might call it the universe or the God they don't know or whatever. Um, so it, it instructs in this way as well, even in the, in the world. For this reason, then, everything that rebukes sin is and belongs to the preaching of the law. This is a really important statement. You can talk about certain things having to do with the gospel. For example, you know, let's go to the heart of the gospel, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Okay, this is our redemption. The blood spilled on the cross redeems us from our sins. But it also exposes God's wrath against sin that he should have to put to death his only begotten son. And so you can take one and the same episode in the history of salvation, if you will, and preach it in two very different ways. If I preach the crucifixion as a way of pointing out the horror of your sin, you nailed Christ to the cross. It was your sins that put the son of God on the cross. That is a preaching of the law, not of the gospel. Because it accuses me. Exactly. Exactly. It shows the horror of sin. Now, this was the problem with Agricola. Agricola looked at an episode like the crucifixion of the Son of God and said, this is all gospel. Obviously, if I preach this gospel by saying, look, your sins nailed the Son of God to the cross— it's going to be doing some accusation. It's the gospel that's doing the accusing. And in that, he was, he was incorrect. Because the gospel does not accuse. The gospel, properly speaking, delivers. Give, delivers us from sin, death, and the devil's power. So is it too much to say that it's like the two sides of the coin? I mean, are, how in the world can you look at both sides of the coin? You know that there's two sides. But if you focus on one side to the exclusion of the other, or then say that what? That the other side doesn't exist? That's what Agricola was, was doing, saying that the gospel properly is the, only, is the church's only message. 
this is where it gets confusing for people. Sure. It's hard to dissect the law from the gospel at times. I mean, when there are certain verses and certain passages, you know, it's almost like what, Venn diagram stuff here? I mean, there's some overlap. Again, this goes back to the first the first of their theses, right? Uh, they must always be kept together, but distinguished from each other. And And the reason is this, okay? So there is nothing wrong with a pastor preaching the crucifixion of Christ as an indictment of sin. There's nothing sure. wrong with that. Sure. But he cannot in the same breath say that the indictment of sin is our salvation. It's not my repentance that saves me. It's Jesus dying on the cross in my place that saves me. And this is where the, the confusion comes up. And I would imagine it's uh, alive and well in evangelicaldom. Sure. The task of the theologian is making distinctions. It is making distinctions. I was thinking you were going to go in a different direction. I like that. It is making distinctions. It's also picking up the accent that God himself has and growing into that accent. And, uh, you know, my accent has changed since I've moved to Kansas. I sure. know that for sure. I don't say my long O's anymore and things like that. And it's not on purpose. It's just because I'm stewed in Kansas dialect. Your accent has gotten a lot lighter, I've noticed, uh, over the years. Just as that occurs on a human level, the task of the theologian is getting as close to a native accent, you know, a divinely native accent as possible. But the gospel is primarily the kind of teaching that shows what a person who has not kept the law and therefore is condemned by it is to believe. It teaches that Christ has paid for and made satisfaction for all sins, Romans 5, 9. Christ has gained and acquired for an individual without any of his own merit, forgiveness of sins, righteousness that avails before God, and eternal life, Romans 5, 10. So both of these things, these two messages, the law and the gospel, speak to sin and to sinners, don't they? If you had, uh, you know, ba on the basis of these two theses, Pastor Kearns, to, to sort of simplify this so that people can hear it, what, how does the law speak to the sinner and how does the gospel speak to the sinner? What's the two different messages? Yeah, the, the way that I first think about it is uh, the SOS acronym of the law shows our sin and the gospel SOS shows our savior. Good. That's a very simple way for people to, to hear this. So as you're listening to a sermon, thinking that you're hearing gospel, the questions to be asking are, is what I am hearing a pure gift of God, the pure gift of imputed righteousness for the sake of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection? And if the answer is yes, guess what? That is gospel. But if the message is somehow not pure gift, if there are strings attached to it, or you better get busy, those are law statements. No, they properly belong in Christianity. We're not saying that they don't belong in Christianity. They cannot, however, be mixed into the gospel. So what do you do, though, Pastor Bruss, when you hear a sermon where the only mention of Jesus in a said sermon is maybe at the very beginning when they pray in Jesus' name and then at the conclusion where they pray in Jesus' name. I mean, for 45 minutes, there's not been a pointing at all to the gospel. It is really a pummeling the people 
with the law. And I, and I would love to to say that I'm I'm being facetious or or dramatic when I say this, but I have listened to sermon after sermon after sermon where there is no gospel. So in that case, uh, it's one of two things. Either it is truly God's law, where they're actually saying, look, these are the Ten Commandments, this is how you ought to Oh, no, 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 you're being kind. Right, but typically it's not. Typically it's, you know, five tips for being a better dad or something uh, along these lines, in which case I would say it is a law-accented human invention that that you're hearing in, in those instances. But what's sad is, going back to your earlier analogy, that accent is what they're familiar with. Right, and and they call that gospel. Right, they call that the gospel truth, and that part of that has to do with a confusion in language, even emanating from the scriptures. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Another thing that I want to point out is the flip side of this: certain denominations, uh, like the UCC, uh, United Church of Christ, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the big uh, Lutheran, you know, non-Lutheran Lutheran church, apostate, yeah, Lutheran. apostate Lutheran yeah. church have done something really troubling. What they've done is that they have conflated gospel and love. God is love, right? This is what the scriptures say. And so living in that love, I therefore love, and that is gospel. Well, now, what's the problem with that? Love, at least the love that I have toward you and the love you have toward me and that we have toward everybody is defined by the law. It is a law statement. And so you you have law really masquerading as gospel. So it seems like it's all gospel. It seems all happy and rainbows and unicorns and love and goodness and God smiling at you, but actually what's going on underneath the surface and not very far underneath the surface is a skewering and a killing being carried out again and again and again by the the law, which cannot but help condemn me. But isn't there also in those those sects, uh, wouldn't you say that there's an exclusion of law because they're not going to call one to repentance? They're not going to name sins because we're all sinners and nobody's perfect and Jesus loves everybody and all are welcome? You hit it right on the head. So in their... (laughs) gospel exclusivity um, denies the law, uh, denies that it's valid, uh, and, you know, we don't want to use it because, boy, that's depressing and people will, you know, walk away from us. What was that sign in uh, that that church that you referenced here uh, recently near your house? You know, Jesus welcomed everybody, so we do too. Exactly. That's that's, That's a fantastic statement of law, isn't it? It seems like gospel, but it's actually a statement of law. This is an interesting thing. We cannot live like the gospel. We can live like the law, but we can't live like the gospel. Even the statement to forgive our neighbor's sins, which sounds very gospel gospelish, is actually a law statement. I'm obligated to do this because God has told me to do it. And the fact that I don't exposes my sin for which I need the blood of the Son of God, the gospel. So the fifth paragraph here would be the term gospel is not used in one and the same sense in the Holy Scriptures. 
That's why this disagreement originally arose. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that if the term gospel is understood to mean Christ's entire teaching that he proposed in his ministry, as his apostles did also, this is how it is used in Mark 1.15, Acts 20.21, then it is correctly said and written that the gospel is a preaching of repentance and of the forgiveness of sins. Now, I, I think I know where he's going here with this. I mean, I think this is, you know, you could ask somebody, what is the gospel? And the biblically astute man or woman would say, well, it's clearly spelled out. The gospel is clearly spelled out in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that says Jesus died he was For our buried sins according to the scriptures yes, yes. and and rose again and and this would be a correct uh, answer however that's that's really gospel in a narrow sense wouldn't you say there's two senses to the word isn't that what this is saying absolutely that's exactly what this is getting to uh, we talk about gospel truth in our modern parlance don't we uh, and what we mean by a statement like that is that whatever you've said is true now whether that's a law statement or a gospel statement we say that's that's gospel truth Gospel in its narrow sense and gospel in its broad sense. These are the two, there's this underlying issue in the scriptures. So a gospel in the broad sense might be, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, that's gospel in the broad sense. It says nothing about the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, but it's because of what Jesus did that the saint who dies dies in the Lord, and they await the day of resurrection. And you can push that even further, and you can say that the gospel, in some of the senses in which it's used in the scriptures, actually embraces the law. This is why the problem arose. So let's go back to my original example, where Agricola could point to the crucifixion of Jesus and say, from this one episode in the salvation uh, uh, history of humankind, I can proclaim repentance, your sins nailed Jesus to the cross, and I can proclaim that for the sake of his shed blood, your sins have been forgiven. Again, this goes to this matter of distinguishing the messages, but not separating them, and uh, saying that gospel, even in its broad sense, broad sense, can speak to the repentance over sins worked by the law, but that's gospel in the broad sense. So when I was listening to Lutheran sermons, this is mind-bending at how every Lutheran sermon that I heard would reference baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the absolution. And those are all pure gospel. Right. Pure gift, won by Christ for us. So even if the text for the lectionary was all law, which rarely is it all law. I mean, there's the reason they're, they're picked is because there's law and gospel in all of these passages. But this was what was so beautiful about the Lutheran sermons is that they still gave me gospel, even though the text itself had nothing to do with Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Right, the narrow details of the life of Christ. Yeah, all uh, these, there are gifts that emanate from this. Um, 
the forgiveness of sins, which is gotten through the absolution, baptism, so on and so forth, right? Those are all part of the gospel, narrowly speaking. So we have this, the scriptural definition, the Paul's three points in 1 Corinthians 15. But what this is saying uh, here in the formula of Concord is anytime the sinner is hearing, receiving uh, through the sacraments or, or whatever, the forgiveness of his sins, that properly speaking is gospel. Anytime his sins are being rebuked, that properly speaking is law. Uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, this is Jesus' words uh, to the disciples on uh, Easter night. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So we're talking about just central elements of the gospel. In the narrow sense. In the very narrowest sense, mm-hmm. right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, like the, the, deta- the tiny mm-hmm. details. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what is, so the, here's the issue. The message of the apostles that the Lord Jesus gave them was repentance and forgiveness of sins. Agricola looked at this and said, see, God, God set these guys apart for the gospel only. So repentance belongs to the gospel. That's a mistake. What Jesus is saying is, Law and gospel. Exactly. Go proclaim law and gospel. Yep. They're, they're always to go together. They're not to be mixed together. Repentance doesn't earn you the forgiveness of sins. Your keeping of the law doesn't earn you the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins, interestingly, doesn't get you off the hook on living according to the law. So in paragraph 6... The epitome reads, the law and the gospel are also contrasted with each other. Likewise, also, Moses himself as a teacher of the law and Christ as a preacher of the gospel are contrasted with each other, John 1.17. In these cases, we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a preaching of repentance or rebuke, but it is properly nothing other than a preaching of consolation and a joyful message that does not rebuke or terrify. The gospel comforts consciences against the terrors of the law, points only to Christ's merit, and raises them up again by the lovely preaching of God's grace and favor gained through Christ's merit. So this really follows up on exactly what we were talking about just a second ago, that in one and the same breath, in fact, the best preachers that I know can put the strongest law and the sweetest gospel in one sentence where you get skewered and killed by the law and brought to life by, by what Christ has done for you. And that Jesus does this all over the place. The gospel writers do it all over the place. And it's just fascinating the amount of time that preachers in the evangelical world, and I'm not saying it couldn't happen in the Lutheran world too, but my experience, unfortunately, mostly has been in the evangelical world. They don't think in these terms. They don't know God's accent, and so they preach in a different accent. And I'll give you this one statement that uh, actually Pastor Ross uh, made one time, and I can't remember if he made it on one of our podcasts or if it was just made to me, but it was a great statement. And he said, so you're telling me that the evangelical pastor, he just preaches the commentaries. And I, I just thought, yeah, 
So kind of uh, parsing uh, and going through word by word. And, and of course, even a, a, that's an interesting way of putting it, but even a Lutheran just preaching the commentaries would be hearing the accents of law and gospel throughout this discussion. And, you know, the sad thing is, as you were telling me about, as you were just speaking, I realized w what a desperate position this puts people in. Uh, when you are hearing only law, whether it's contrived law or divine law, all you can do is either turn into a Pharisee or despair over yourself. And you're right. I mean, Luther talks about this either in this article or the next. I can't remember. Here's what's sad. The pride is something that you can show off. But if you fall into despair, you're out there all alone. Because if you, if you tell anybody then what they say is, get back to work. You're not trying hard enough. You're not trying right. hard enough. And so you don't tell any. It's like the anorexic at the party. I mean, she's not going to tell anybody she's going to the bathroom to vomit. So you're getting a law, ad, a law answer to a problem that's been created by the law. And what you really need is the gospel answer. The, the, the gospel answer being, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Right. Matthew chapter 9. Right. I'll, I'll give you this one example. You know, for years I prayed for God's favor. It was through the understanding of law and gospel that you realize, I have God's favor because of Christ. It, it's not me praying for something I've already been given. Your, your prayers don't activate it, isn't that? That's, in, that's an interesting thing. That's actually a very telling anecdote, isn't it? Good. Uh, let's move on. Number seven. Concerning the revelation of sin, Moses' veil hangs, 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 16. Moses' veil hangs before the eyes of all people as long as they hear the bare preaching of the law and nothing about Christ. Therefore, they do not learn from the law to see their sins correctly. They either become bold hypocrites who swell with the opinion of their own righteousness, like the Pharisees in Matthew 23, or they despair like Judas in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Therefore, Christ takes the law into his hands and explains it spiritually. Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Romans 7, 14. In this way, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all sinners, Romans 1, 18 so that they see how great it is. In this way, they are directed back to the law, and then they first learn from it to know their sins correctly, a knowledge that Moses never could have forced out of them. So this is an interesting statement, that, um, that to know God only through his law can only make you presumptuous or despairing. That's the on, those are the only two options. And I would say that the vast majority of people that we encounter uh, from the unbelieving world are those who, who are presumptuous. Uh, they've lived a good life. Uh, when they get to the pearly gates, everything's going to be just fine because, you know, they never catted around on their spouse and they made a good living and were generous with their time. And Grandpa and, was a pastor. And, and Grandpa was a pastor, even though they never set foot in church. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of, that's the law orientation. And so <clears throat> the veil of the law, <clears throat> this, is what, this is what this is saying, the, the law stands like a veil over their eyes. And what they need is the deeper exposition of the law, which is actually throughout the law, that Christ gives in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you have heard it said of old, 
you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, anyone who hates his brother has already committed murder in his heart. Boom! There, I am skewered, and I find out just what a claim the, the law has on me. It destroys, and it must destroy every last ounce of my own righteousness. And, and wouldn't you say that, I mean, this was the teaching of Jesus in particular to the Pharisees. They had taken the law, and they had um, dulled it by their other writings, the traditions of the elders, and all of this. And so when, you know, it's like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is sitting on the hillside sharpening the law, you know, like a stick, right? so that uh, when he says what you just said that he says, I mean, it's like he's poking everybody. They used to be poked with this, but it was like a wiffle ball bat. It was so dull. It it didn't have a sting to it. Uh, People did feel like and think that they were keeping God's law. And this is all over the New Testament scriptures. Uh, you have the presumption of the, the rich young man um, who's, who's kept the whole law, right? Uh, oh, right. And, and then wants to, you know... Give uh, me some more. Exactly. I've kept those from my youth. Exactly, right? Or you've got the the, fair, the wonderful parable, the, the Pharisee and the publican in the temple, where the guy's thanking God that he is not like other people who are hamartoloi, who are sinners. He's not even a sinner. I, he, he, he can't even look into his own heart and see the blackness of it. And the crazy thing there... Well, he fasts twice a week, though, Pastor Bruss. He, he does. But here's the thing, and, and this is what's lacking in every single one of these guys, is that they fail to keep the first commandment. They fail to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Because where are they looking? They're looking to their own doing. God has set up these... Criteria, I'm doing just fine in meeting them. And so you find out very quickly that even the most outwardly righteous life harbors and hides a most wicked heart that will not countenance God as its highest good, the God who who gives purely out of grace and mercy. Mm. And when you say, going back to the uh, the Pharisee and the publican, you know, as the Pharisee doesn't even acknowledge that he's a sinner, whereas the publican, if I'm not mistaken, even though, again, the English translation is going to say, have mercy on me, a sinner, there's an article there, the sinner. The sinner. And, oh, there's so much more going on there because he says he's standing there in front of the hilasterion, the, the mercy seat of God, and he does not say eleison, which is the typical word. He says he lost be propitiated, God. So he's there. He is throwing everything on God, and that's how God wants to be God, as a God who gives. He's the self-donating God who breathes his spirit into the lungs of Adam and then who comes into our flesh to be killed to save us from our sin and from our death. Pastor Kearns, now we move on with point seven, continued. Yes, according to this, the preaching of the suffering and death of Christ, the Son of God, is a serious and terrifying proclamation and declaration of God's wrath. By such preaching, people are first led into the law correctly, after Moses' veil has been removed from them. Then they understand correctly for the first time what great things God requires of us in his law, none of which we can keep. Therefore, they know we are to seek our righteousness 
in Christ. So earlier on, they had said that apart from Christ, it's impossible to know the depth of the law. Now, there are two reasons. Number one, we get his wonderful exposition of it in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that murder doesn't just mean murder, it means hatred in the heart, and that makes you guilty before God. That's point number one. But point number two is that the wrath of God against sin cannot be imagined, and the depth of our sin cannot be imagined unless we see the Son of God himself hanging from the accursed tree. Um, what that says to us is that your predicament is so bad that there's nothing you could do to save yourself. The law is useless, and your use of the law is condemned because it will ultimately lead you straight to hell. That's the point of this. So again, as we had said earlier, uh, this was Agricola's uh, hang-up. He thought that by pointing to this one episode, he could preach both, he, which he called all gospel, that he could preach repentance as a gospel thing and faith as a, as a gospel thing. The Lutheran confessions say, no, 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 Agricola, you're right, you can preach both, but one of those messages is law because it's killing the sinner, and the other one of those is gospel because it's giving the sinner life. Then how can you have Agricola saying that when, what, Roman says, where St. Paul says, I didn't even know, how did he say, I didn't even have a knowledge of the law until it came to coveting? Right, so I, I would not have known sin unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet. This right. is Romans chapter 7. So here's the law, commandments 9 and 10, telling him not to covet, and once he, okay, using that mirror analogy, uh, he sees that I am eat up with covetousness. Like there, it's fascinating, isn't it? How the Pharisaical mind would say, "Well, I can, I can, even though my mind is awash with lustful thoughts, as long as I don't get it on with uh, Rachel over here, then I'm good." There's no fence for coveting. There, there. There's no way to keep it in, to keep that in. Right. And so once he, once he realizes this, right, he's filleted, which is the way he's supposed to be. It's what the law does. It accuses, and his conscience is, is burdened. Right. And the finer point of, of uh, Paul uh, appealing to the Ninth and Tenth Commandments against coveting uh, is this, that, he, that it exposes a heart set not on God as we were created, but on the things that God created. And so really uh, the ninth and 10th commandments are a different way of saying the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. As soon as I start to covet my neighbor's whatever, uh, that has become my God and we're all there. All right, and so then the last one of the uh, affirmativa Yet as long as all this, namely Christ's suffering and death, proclaims God's wrath and terrifies a person, it is still not properly the preaching of the gospel. It remains the preaching of Moses and the law, and it is, therefore, an alien work of Christ. Passing through this teaching, Christ arrives at his proper office, that is, to preach grace, console, and give life, which is properly the preaching of the gospel. How easy it would be to take something like the suffering uh, and death of the Son of God 
on a good Friday afternoon and use it purely to expose sin and think that you had, in doing that, proclaimed the gospel. And what this is saying is that would be a huge mistake. You would not have proclaimed the gospel one bit. Unless Christ is proclaimed as for you, there on our behalf, suffering in my place to redeem me, it remains um, law, the sharpest law. And so going back to the point that I was making earlier, a lot of evangelical preachers, and I'm talking about the, the guys who've got some sort of theological understanding. I'm not talking about a lot of the crackpots that we listen to on a regular basis uh, here on the podcast, but when they're preaching the commentaries, the commentaries are not written in a law-gospel way. Their commentaries aren't, at least. That's correct. Right. Would you say, then, that the veil of Moses not only hangs over the preacher, but also hangs over this entire congregation? Potentially. Potentially. I w- I, Isn't that terrible? It, it's horrifying, actually. It really is horrifying. I remember when you were confronted one time, I think in an elders' meeting, somebody was remarking about the big box church down the road and how many people go there. I think the question was raised, have you seen the number of cars that are in that parking lot? And the person said, uh, you would think that Jesus was there. And you very quickly and astutely said, Moses is. Right. People respond to this kind of law preaching uh, very well because we have the opinio legis, the opinion of the law. We we want to opine about ourselves and our salvation and everything else in the whole wide world according to the law because it's still written on our hearts. And so, yeah, boy, you can uh, you can get get a crowd, me, get asses and pews real quick <laughs> uh, by focusing only on law, but it doesn't save anybody because it doesn't give us Christ as Redeemer. So we've got one negative statement, and it says this, We reject and regard as incorrect and harmful the teaching that the gospel, strictly speaking, is a preaching of repentance or rebuke, and not just a preaching of grace. For by this misuse, the gospel is converted into a teaching of the law. Christ's merit and Holy Scripture are hidden Christians are robbed of true consolation, and the door is opened again to the papacy. And this well describes, uh, and we've remarked this many, many times before, have we not, that the errors we're hearing in the evangelical churches are precisely the errors against which the Reformers spoke back in the 1500s. Yeah, it's shocking to, to think that, but that is the conclusion that one comes to when when you think that your salvation is made sure by works which is the underlying if not explicit message of many many evangelical churches out there this is nothing short of papistic doctrine and teaching however in a lutheran church what you hear is that your sins <laughs> No matter who you are, no matter how dastardly they are, no matter how they plague you, no matter how you continue to struggle with them or don't struggle with them, your sins have been dealt with once for all by the blood of Christ and that they are spoken free of you by the absolution, by the word in the sacrament of the altar, uh, my body, my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins and, and in your baptism as well. And this is such a different preaching. Oh, it totally is. But the evangelical can immediately latch on to what you just said 
And they can say, well, then I'm free to do anything I want. But that actually leads us to the next article, doesn't it? Precisely. That's good. So that leads us right into the next article, and uh, we will get to that. Uh, What I I thought would be interesting for people who who may be listening to this, live in the evangelical world, and just are thinking, what are these guys talking about, actually? I mean, how... What's the difference in sound? Well, if you want to hear the accent of God, tune in to the sermons at St. John's are kept up online for eight weeks. Um, go to the St. John's LCMS Topeka website. Go to the, the worship tab. Underneath that, you'll find sermons. It's even hooked up as a podcast, so you can tune in. There are many, many other wonderful LCMS preachers out there who rightly divide the word of truth. And so tune into those maybe in your local area. Yeah, and familiarize yourself with the accent of God. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Bruss. Time for coffee. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. I covet your hair, Pastor Kearns. I covet your cub cadet, Pastor Russ. Oh, that, that is a covetable thing for sure. <laughs>